Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Three Peas in a Pod, the new podcast from the team behind Partnerships Bulletin and P3 Bulletin. I'm Paul Jarvis, the editor, and with me is my deputy, Jonathan Davis. Today, we have a special guest with Matthew Vickerstaff joining us from the UK's Infrastructure and Projects Authority to give us an update on what's happening in the heart of government. Following the interview, Jonathan and I will be picking out some of the main points for discussion, so stick around for that. Now, though, I would like to introduce Matthew, who is Deputy Chief Executive of the IPA and Head of the Government's Project Finance Profession. He is responsible for the UK Guarantee Scheme and the PFI Contract Management Programme, as well as stimulating investment through targeted investments such as the Charging Infrastructure Investment Fund, or SIF. Thank you for joining us today, Matthew. It's great to speak with you. I think a good place to start would be the net zero agenda, which is obviously high on the list of all governments these days. So could you maybe tell us a bit about some of the things that the IPA is doing around this agenda? Thank you, yeah, Paul. So as you say, the net zero agenda is such a huge topic across government and across all our lives that it really does go to the core of is embedded in everything we're thinking about doing and in terms of providing support to projects and programmes, it's at the heart of what we are thinking about within the IPA. There's, I think, two main areas. One is the systems approach. So are our projects and programmes within government embracing net zero? Do they have a net zero plan as they think about their projects? It goes from as wide as are they looking at clean concrete green steel in terms of the projects they're looking to implement and do they have a whole life carbon not just scope one and scope two emissions but scope three emissions and some of the work for example hs2 has done in this area has actually been really kind of impressive and targeting towards kind of best practice but as we look across projects and programs in government we are looking at system-wide approaches to whole life carbon. Similarly, across the PFI programme, we recognise absolutely that when these projects were originally designed and configured and built, for some of those projects, we were still in Kyoto, let alone Paris targets. Things have moved on a huge amount, and therefore some of the provisions in the contracts are outdated. And we need to think about how we apply net zero concepts and targets to those contracts across the system in PFI. Then more broadly, the IPA provides support and advice to colleagues in multitude of departments across government. And in particular, in terms of energy transition, nuclear, for example, carbon capture, utilisation and storage, the rapid charging fund, but all sorts of other things, such as the application of hydrogen, both supply and demand, battery storage. So that's just a kind of very quick skim over the various system-wide and project-specific interventions. That's a great overview. It sounds like there's plenty to keep you busy at the IPA. And I know that the IPA has had various funds as a way to stimulate private investment. Could you perhaps tell us a bit about those and how they have kicked things off? The Digital Infrastructure Investment Fund and the EV Charging Infrastructure Fund, so what we call DIF and SIF, were very much classic, if you're in the finance world, general partner, limited partner 
funds which have an investment committee, have very clear investment criteria, which were highly harmonised and synchronised with government policy in terms of investment in digital infrastructure. Broadband built to the premises rather than just to the cabinet, so going that extra mile. And then the EV charging infrastructure investment fund also to invest in all technology which promoted electric vehicle charging infrastructure. And that could actually be in a piece of software, piece of hardware that might be utilised to help, let's say, more rapid charging, or it could have been the physical charging locations. We are very kind of proud of how successful DIFF was. It's still operational, it's still working. So in that situation, we chose two asset managers. It's on record, one Amber, one Infra Capital. So we had more than the one player. And then on the SIF, the Charging Infrastructure Investment Fund, we chose Zook, a more private equity type infrastructure investors. They have both been really impactful in terms of the amount of investment that they have promoted into the sector, but they were very much nascent sectors at the time. DIFF is now almost four years old and the SIF even is almost three years old. Very early stages of the development of those sectors. As you build up at scale, interestingly for DIFF, so the broadband fund, we've seen new champions like City Fibre, GigaClear, very much come into the market alongside BT, Virgin, etc. as that sector is being scaled out. So we're, we're actually very happy that we were in very early, showed the way, brought in private sector investment, which then acted as a model to actually get huge amount more private investment into that sector. And the same is true of the EV charging infrastructure investment fund. It's still further off. It still obviously requires a lot more cars to transition to electronic vehicles. And there's been an element of the impact of COVID, but also it will take time for EVs to come through. But in addition to Zook, we're already seeing a lot more investments in that area. And in fact, it is on record, one of the very early investments, in fact, it was the first investment that SIF made, which is in Instavolt, has now actually been acquired by EQT, who are looking to invest a lot more money at scale into that company to really scale up rapid charging. Again, demonstrating that that early showing the way public and private investment is then really, as the sector kind of develops, really is kind of rolled out by the private sector. And as a final point on the net zero side of things, what would you like to see from the private sector when it comes to helping accelerate the net zero agenda? There's a combination of things. One is always looking for innovation and solution-based investments to actually deal with some of the challenges which we're undoubtedly going to get. I think some of those are around network resilience. So certainly in terms of the classic bank holiday where everybody is on the road and we've transitioned completely to EV charging, we may find that there are going to be pinch points in terms of the resilience and supply of electricity on a regional basis to actually address some of the challenges that we might have. Now that might be a combination of 
balancing the system and networks, it might be investment in battery storage, for example, on a regional perspective to ensure that resilience is there. I think added to that, I'm interested in hearing about different solutions operationally. Is there going to be a kind of lease model? So is space going to be provided where we have similar situations to, let's say, the telecoms, where you have the operators who actually buy charging time and then actually sell that time and that power to different fleets, different operational models? Is that a kind of lease model or is it a merchant revenue model? Um, hearing some of the both technical solutions, commercial and financial options for some of the solutions that we might need. Hearing that from the private sector would be really, really healthy. The investment in speed of charging as well, so improving that performance, that's really something that the private sector hopefully has the capacity and capability to bring to the table and will help the system overall. Yeah, there are some really big and interesting topics there, I think, for people to dig into. And it's certainly one of those things you could have a, really a full day conference on, um, but we do need to move on. So, you know, thinking now about expiry and handback of PFI and PPP contracts, which is obviously really one of the major topics for the industry in the UK at the moment, and certainly will be for the next decade at least. Can you perhaps tell us about what the IPA is doing and your next steps? Very happy to do that and agree just to your go for the decade and next. As you know, we collect data from all PFI projects and following the 2020 National Audit Office and also Public Accounts Committee kind of meeting on that, we have fine-tuned data collection so that we now are very much focused on what is the expiry date, who are the suppliers, what are the contracts in place facilitating PFI contracts, because we need to know that to plan for expiry. Things aren't just going to stop. Public services will carry on and indeed private sector provision of services will actually need to be put in place as well beyond the expiry date. There are essentially two kind of bow waves which are coming. And if you kind of think back about when the contracts were entered into at pace, a lot of deals were put in place such that they first bow wave expiring in 2030-31, and then there's a further bow wave that happens in 2036-37. And that's really when we see peaking of the number of expiries of projects. Now, that just happens to be about, for the first bow wave, about seven years out. So we really need to start preparing now. And we have an expiry health check tool that we have designed to actually go with the contract managers of those projects to really assess how well prepared they are for expiry. And that covers a number of projects, which uh, I won't go through in detail, but it is how well prepared they are in terms of their governance, how well do they understand their contracts, what's the state of their relationships, do they really understand the commercial dynamics, what is the asset condition, have they really got a handle on what their asset condition in is and what it should be at expiry and then finally future service provision and as you can imagine there's a host of questions that we run through as we carry out that expiry health check tool and then we 
rag rate the preparedness of that project seven years out, and then we will, as there's a flight path to expiry, do that at five-year and three-year intervals. That's something that we're doing with the public sector, and you'll have seen our expiry guidance that we've put out, which really is more about the why and the what. Why and what should we be doing in terms of preparedness for expiry? We're now working through in terms of how to do that. So we are working on a number of toolkits, setting up projects for success in terms of being prepared for expiry, but also very importantly, we are working with the private sector and we've created a number of working groups with private sector investors and asset managers. We've got five working groups that we're contemplating. Two we have kicked off, one around asset condition. How should one carry out asset condition surveys and approach that on a way that actually comes to a consensus rather than dispute? We're also keen that everybody doesn't go into their own camp, carry out the survey, come with their separate survey, and then need somebody else to review both those surveys and carry out a third survey to actually create a way of addressing any disputes or disagreements that might occur. So that's asset condition, and there's a huge amount in that. Not least, what's the market capacity, especially as we hit those bow waves in 2030, 31, and 36 and 37, uh, to do those asset condition surveys. And by the way, that's not just asset condition, it's also mechanical and electrical, it's also environmental, so in terms of waste and services, it's also fire and safety, etc. Um, so there are different professions built into that asset condition survey as well. Second working group is on net zero. We've talked a little bit about that, but it is how do we, with these contracts which were contemplated, negotiated and entered into pre-net zero, how do we adapt them and in particular, the investment that is made around things like lighting, buildings management systems, air management systems, and obviously heating, waste management, greenhouse gases, depending on, uh, we've got some quite complex assets in PFI. How do we ensure that we reduce and manage over time and limit the carbon footprint? The third is on future service provision. There's a lot of guidance about how to procure facilities management, soft services, etc. We are not short of that guidance, so we don't need to replicate anything to do with that. But what there isn't is a kind of process for within a contract, and it's been a long-term contract with a core important supplier, needing to kind of contemplate how you can move from that to perhaps a new contract, either bringing that service in-house or continuing to contract either with that service provider or a third-party entity for that same or similar service provision. Not least, making sure that the public sector knows what it wants, perhaps five years out from when it has to contract that new service and what implications there might be for the KPIs and level of service and type of services that are actually were procured immediately after that expiry date. And just very quickly, there are a couple of other working groups as well we're contemplating, particularly around information data handover. Again, when the contracts were originally contemplated, 
I think what they envisaged is that kind of four or five rooms of paper copies of operating manuals, warranties, service specs, etc., designs would be somehow with a forklift trucks move from private sector rooms to public sector rooms, which frankly is impractical and didn't really think through the implications of that from ensuring operational performance and continuity. Just to finalise on the working groups, what we've also encouraged via a steering group above that, so of all the, the major investors and their asset managers, is to bring the senior management groups together to actually coordinate and agree the buy-in to the, the outputs from those working groups so that we do have an agreement across the private sector, but we've also introduced the key departments uh, from the public sector into that group as well, so we can have a real strategic dialogue. Yeah, and I think that's going to be important. And I think that's what a lot of people in the industry are hoping as well, is that by the time we get to the mid-2030s, there will be a process in place. There's a, a lot of very good intentions and a very good overall intent from both sides, public and private. We, we hear a lot about disputes and, and difficulties with contract management. These are very kind of dynamic, operationally important and sensitive at the operating level. Actually, people do want to do the right thing and ensure that these assets do come back in very good condition. There is a very lot of good intention, strong desire, despite the fact there are some big commercial complex issues and there's real money at risk as well, which always creates complexity. I've been really impressed by the good intent, the constructive and collaborative way that both sides are approaching this major challenge for the industry. Well, that leads nicely on to my next question, particularly with the health checks you mentioned earlier on. The first of those have been carried out already. How are you seeing those turning out? Are you surprised, concerned, pleased by what you're seeing? I mean, the, the, there is a couple of things. One, as you know, we had the creation of standardised PFI contracts, ending up with a kind of SOPC 4, 4B, effectively. And therefore, on some of these really tricky topics like handback, performance metrics, payment mechanisms, etc., there was an improvement and evolution of the system over time. Some of the early contracts were really quite limited in terms of the amount of detail. And if you talk to some of the lawyers who were around at that time, they kind of say, well, we'll let other people worry about that. Some of them are still around, so they're worrying about it now. But in terms of the level of sophistication and maturity that was in SOPC4, there really isn't that. That isn't the case in some of the early contracts. And that creates complexity, and it means that one has to resolve some of those issues in terms of setting expectations. Some of them refer to good industry practice, to benchmarks and, and definitions which again, aren't always as clear as one might like from a contractual perspective. So there's no doubt some of these early contracts create challenges. We've been kind of really looking at this in a lot of detail now for kind of two and a half years. We have seen a huge improvement already. So I think that's a kind of way of saying 
we saw a bit too many kind of amber reds in terms of our health tech analysis in the earlier projects, but we're seeing certainly more kind of amber and amber greens now, which is exactly what we would expect. And remember that we're doing it seven years out, which means that hopefully they will migrate kind of green uh, being well prepared by the end of that seven year period and actually hitting the expiry dates. Great, thank you. Obviously, inflation is a big issue at the moment and has been for several months and is expected to continue to be. Other countries have looked at doing different things to promote, stimulate or even just help other projects survive, whether that's paying a proportion of bid costs to support bidders, which is something the Irish market has looked at and come back to several times over the past decade. Has the IPA looked at ways it can help and what it can do on live projects? We have, as you'd expect, absolutely been looking at inflationary pressures really in a couple of areas one is obviously the financial impact and in particular some of our major projects and programs so you know the the obvious ones like hs2 not necessarily directly affecting the taxpayer but certainly the consumer things like hinkley point those projects where there are a lot of supply contracts and a lot of acquisitions of materials labor etc the financial impact of that has to be evaluated and, and is certainly something we've been working with dft bays on and also the core suppliers just to evaluate how do we react how can we improve efficiencies and create more credits in that balance sheet given that from an inflationary perspective there are lots of lots of debits and efficiency innovation initiatives, use of off-site manufacturing, modern methods of construction, and improving the performance from a delivery perspective to create additional productivity and efficiency is absolutely something which the IPA have been working on. We are aware as well, inevitably, in terms of private sector financing of things like carbon capture, utilisation and storage, the impact where kind of contracts for difference in terms of the dispatchable power agreements and also the industrial carbon and hydrogen does involve effectively a CFD type mechanism. You also have inflationary pressures as well, where in, in that situation, it's more a regulated asset based type model. And therefore, again, the argument there is more about can you be comfortable that expenditure is undertaken on an economic and efficient way? For example, forward locking in prices, if you can, to manage inflationary pressures. So I think really in summary, the focus is more on assessing what the impact would be, because this is not something that's optional or we know there's the energy crisis these are real things that are coming through inflationary pressures are there but how does one react and try and mitigate that inflationary pressure by more productivity more efficiency different ways of delivering making sure that there's less waste in the system i feel we'll see some leveling out but again, that's not to ignore the fact that there's a lot of in inflationary pressure that will have then been embedded in to the system, which we do need to find some ways of managing and mitigating over time. Well, that's been a great run through of where the IPA is at and what it's working on. So thank you very much for your time, Matthew. Thank you. Thank you.
So, plenty to get our teeth into there, Jonathan. What particularly piqued your interest? Well, where to begin, Paul? I mean, there's lots to go through, lots of different wide-ranging topics. I mean, it shows how wide Matthew's portfolio is and what he has to do. So I think, for me, SIF and DIF is such an interesting way to see how the government can really influence future pipelines and stimulate real investment. Being the first mover and you know taking those risky initial steps is something that we hear a lot of calls for across the industry, and especially in the public institutions like with the new UK Investment Bank, and as we've seen over in Canada with theirs, it's a role that a lot of people want. And having this proven success could play a big role going forward. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think the only question people have questioned to me about those funds as well is just in terms of their scale and ambition. If you think of particularly EV charging, everyone knows the challenges around trying to get enough infrastructure across the country to make EVs viable for everyone. I think that the danger with the SIF fund is that it's perhaps not as big as people think is necessary to get projects off the ground. So you will have a small number of projects that are stimulated and that that's great. That's a good start. But I think what everyone needs is something a bit bigger is, the, is, is often the feeling to get the scale that we need across the country. I do think though, as Matthew kind of said later on, that you've got a lot of private sector innovation coming in with new models and new ways of doing things. And we've seen only in the last couple of months, these subscription-based ideas and scale is coming. And I think we're all expecting this big cascade of projects to come forward. And I do think we'll look back and say that these two funds did play a really crucial role. So I think they should give the props to that where we can. Yeah, definitely. I think that's that's a good point. I think following on from that, actually, one of the um, points you mentioned was obviously bank holiday troubles, which is you know, nothing new, perhaps, but mm. just maybe a different type of problem that we're going to see. Maybe more seriously, though, I think you know, people in the industry believe that time may be coming for the road network to adopt a kind of user pays approach. I think that's definitely something that has been suggested across the piece. Effectively, you know, a kind of toll road idea. It's definitely something that is happening in other countries. Politically still difficult. We see it in the US, sort of Pennsylvania's approach to P3s to try and get some new bridges there. The tolling was the, the big sticking point. But at the same time, as fuel duties become increasingly irrelevant with the rise of electric vehicles, the need for some form of user pays approach is, is increasingly required. What we may come to see is people being able to sort of buy their time on the road network. That's definitely something that's been suggested to me. So you effectively buy a ticket to go on the M1 or the M6 or whatever it is, just as you would buy a, a rail ticket. And then perhaps you could fold your... EV charging payments into that so that you have a combined ticket, if you like. I think with such a disruptive force coming in, we're bound to see some kind of reconfiguration. As soon as we haven't even got the charges yet, it's too early to say what that could mean down the line. But this is a new world that's on the way. Net zero is going to have impacts across the board. Ways of living, we see it in our homes. We're definitely going to see it in our cars. So I think we can look forward to that. It's a big, exciting rethink. And that's a fun thing to be part of. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, you mentioned Net Zero. We started the conversation with Matthew around Net Zero. And you know, one of the things that he did in his conversation was highlight the age of PFI contracts. And we all know that there are various provisions in contracts, whether it be, you know, let's replace the gas boiler in time for handback. That just doesn't make any sense in a modern setting where a gas boiler is immediately outdated. 
that's obviously going to be a big challenge. And I think it's perhaps you know, nothing new. We know that's the case, but it does, I think, beg the question around capacity, not just within the IPA, but across the board. And something that has come up in our conversations with industry people at our conferences, this question of where is the capacity in the industry going to come from for an industry that is you know, now effectively calling itself in the UK a, a handback or an expiry uh, industry. Definitely. I mean, like I said, net zero is a massive, massive opportunity and reconfiguration. So the amount of attention that needs to go on that is huge. And then, like you say, handbacks on the way. And it's just interesting to think that you've got problems like this gas boiler cliche that comes up so often, but there is no quick fix. There's no way to solve it in an instant. And it's going to take a lot of work to finally put that to bed. And no one knows how that's going to go. And handback is just becoming so, so prevalent. And Matthew is obviously very, very conscious. And that preparation, I think, was really my big takeaway that especially the red, amber and green traffic light system and the fact that authorities are generally moving up the spectrum now, going from red and, and he said, more into amber and amber green is a really positive sign for the sector as a whole because private sector can then react to that and you can start preparing together. And as Matthew said, mentioning surveys and trying to find some kind of common ground. It feels to me like there is progress being made. There's that. There's a lot to do, but it seems like it's going in the right direction. That's my gist from Matthew. What, what do you think, Paul? Yeah, I'd agree. I think, as you say, the transition from all those councillors in red moving towards a amber green is really positive, and I think probably a big relief for everyone involved at the IPA. That said, as you said, there's still a lot of work to be done, and I think there are still plenty of issues there around how you get projects from a position of just ongoing through to hand back through to what happens next. And I'm not necessarily convinced that all projects are sort of on a path where everyone is quite clear as to what happens next. It may be that projects are increasingly aware of the issue of hand back and aware that they need to be prepared to end their contract. What I don't think is necessarily there is how many of them are looking at what's next. And mm. when on day one of post-PFI contract situation, what have they got? What are they going to do with it? How are they going to run it? And I think, yeah, there are still some big knotty issues to be dealt with around that in various types of contract. And you know, it'll be different for different sectors as well, which I think is is perhaps something that, well, I know it's something that the IPA is sort of drilling down into now and focusing more on in terms of how you get a prison through from end of PFI to the new normal compared to a hospital or a school or a road, whatever it might be. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, Matthew mentioned that there are problems approaching which just weren't planned for when these contracts were devised. I think he mentioned a forklift truck worth of documents going from, you know, one base to another and overcoming technical issues like that, which should just be a pragmatic thing, are going to take some collaboration and I did think it was an important point that Matthew made about just to note the good intent that actually is coming from both sides on the vast majority of projects. We do hear a lot about the difficult and kind of fractious relationships, but there is a lot of good intent on making this a success as a legacy issue. But as you said, that there are a lot of work to get to the point where we can consider it to be a, a success. And that success is by no means guaranteed. Yeah, absolutely. 
the reference to the, the kind of forklift truck of, of documents reminds me. I mean, maybe something that COVID has helped with to get people thinking about this a bit more, because um, I know speaking to people who were looking at signing new contracts at the start of COVID talked about having to courier large documents basically around the country for all the different sets of lawyers and relevant parties to actually sign because there was no kind of electronic means of doing that. I'm hoping that maybe in two years of lockdowns and everything else that might have changed and people may be in a position where the idea of um, moving documents from one place to another physically is perhaps not so necessary. But we'll see. We'll see. But just kind of uh, segueing from that theme of moving from one place to another, how do you judge the response from the potential of compensating for bidding costs? How's, what's your feel on that? I know it's something you're interested in. Yes, well, it's definitely something that has cropped up pretty much across the board wherever we see PVPs in procurement. I think there's a, a growing call and demand from the private sector to the public sector to say, Times are hard enough as it is. If you want us to be bidding on these projects, it's quite hard to expect us to just suck up the costs of bidding and not winning. And I think particularly in markets, perhaps like the UK now, where there aren't necessarily a long pipeline of projects, apart from in a few small sectors, water is perhaps an obvious one of the the direct procurement for customers contracts. I think the problem is that if you bid for a project, and you don't win it, you can't recover that costs on the next project because there may not be a next project. So, yeah, I mean, I did obviously try my best to see if the IPA would be keen to provide bid costs as a way of compensating bidders. But I think, yeah, Matthew, perhaps understandably, sort of played a straight bat to that and didn't really um, suggest that was, that was necessarily on the IPA's agenda. To be honest, if you look anywhere in the world at the moment, although it's sort of been mooted in different places, and Ireland, I think, has been particularly... Uh, at the front of this. In practice, it has kind of rarely, if if ever, actually happened. So um, yeah, I think one just for the um, keep an eye on pile, but not necessarily to be expected. Definitely. I think it's all part of the overall rethink agenda for for the industry. There's so many different avenues that we're going down. But what I liked hearing from this interview was that there are some real pragmatic solutions that are starting to come out like we started off our chat with these funds that we're starting to make some headway it's not just talking in circles i think that the infrastructure industry is ready to make some progress yeah and that's a that's a good positive note i think on which to end so thanks for your time jonathan and uh, that was a really good uh, little run through of what's happening in the uk i think so good to hear from matthew as well so thanks to him as well for, for joining us thank you